you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. And big news happening right now as a California Governor Gavin Newsom announcing that uh, Assemblyman Rob Bonta of Oakland has been named Attorney General of California, replacing Javier Becerra. Bonta was one of several candidates being eyed for the job, but someone who's always been right around the top of the list for Gavin Newsom. We're going to tell you all about him coming up just ahead. But first, to our climate. A few years ago, California passed the 100% Clean Energy Act. Now, the goals are ambitious. 60% renewable energy by 2030, a full 100% zero-carbon energy supply by 2045. Now, considering that that first deadline I mentioned is just uh, under nine years away and throw in to the fact that uh, the Trump administration has been sparring or had been sparring with the state on just about everything related to renewable energy, and then you might think, well, okay, so much for setting lofty goals, California. But a study came out today that suggests the city of Los Angeles is not only capable of hitting those statewide goals, but actually doing it a decade earlier. Sammy Roth of the L.A. Times wrote all about this. Uh, Sammy, before we get to that study, uh, tell us how L.A. gets the majority of its power right now. Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, You know, a lot of people don't know this, but a a big chunk of L.A.'s electricity is actually still from coal. We've got a coal plant called Intermountain up in uh, Utah, outside the city of Delta, Utah, which is still about a fifth of the city's power supply. Uh, so between coal and natural gas, uh, about 45% right now is, is fossil fuel with the, uh, with the rest from, you know, renewable or otherwise zero carbon. So, you know, a bunch of solar, wind, uh, also nuclear, hydropower, geothermal. So, so almost half natural gas and coal combined, right? That's right. Yeah. Now, OK, so despite those numbers, Sammy, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory released a study today saying what? Basically, they, they looked at, you know, is it feasible for California to, you know, do what this law says we have to do and get to 100%? And if so, how do we do that? And, and the answer was, yeah, they, they studied a whole bunch of different options and found that we have, you know, really many different pathways that we could use to get there by 2045. And not only by 2045, but potentially uh, by 2035, which is actually the target year that President Biden has been talking about to, to do 100% clean energy for the whole country. And they said that it can be done without blackouts or economic disruption, right? Yeah, this was some pretty crazy modeling by the, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. They uh, they had a supercomputer on this. They had a team of nearly 100 people. They ran like 100 million modeling simulations. And I mean, basically what they they figured out is there is a way to do this where you can keep the lights on, you know, every hour of the day, every day of the year. And, uh, you know, it would have a really negligible impact on on the overall economy of the city, even though, of course, there would be some costs involved. So tell us who the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is, because you mentioned that supercomputer. It's called the Eagle, right? The supercomputer? That's right. Yeah, it's in uh, Golden, Colorado, the headquarters. Um, th- this is a federal research lab there. You know, basically they're part of and, and funded by the Federal Department of Energy. They're you know, really, they're the, they're the you know the top experts on on this stuff. You can't really do better than uh, than Enril. This study, uh, would they just come out come up with it out of the blue? 
Um, it's something that they've been working on with, you know, with the LA Department of Water and Power going back uh, several years. There were some some city council motions calling for this, I think, in like 2016, 2017. So they, they've been hard at work behind the scenes. So this uh, NREL, uh, what do they say has to be done to make uh, LA 100% clean energy by 2035, a full 10 years ahead of what the state might have planned earlier? So the, I mean, the, the big stuff is relatively straightforward. I mean, you, you've got over the next decade a need, they say, to, to build just really, really big amounts of, of solar farms, wind turbines, uh, you know, lithium-ion batteries to help store some of that for, for when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Um, I think the rate that they talk about is that, that you know, LA might need to start building those things three times as fast, you know, over the next, uh, over the next 25 years as it has over the last 10 years, over the last five years. Um, and in addition to that, you're, you're going to need some other stuff to fill in the gaps. You're going to need uh, geothermal power. You're going to need, um, you know, potentially nuclear to stay on in some of the scenarios. You're going to need people to use electricity at different times of day to match, you know, when the sun and the wind are out there. Lots and lots of rooftop solar as well. There, there's a whole bunch of strategies and they, they all fit together in an interesting way. So, Sammy, so, okay, building solar farms, wind turbines, batteries, solar panels, uh, getting people to change their behavior. Why does it take a fancy study to tell us what I think we've already known for a long time now? Yeah, so th that's a really good question. So none of the strategies that are talked about in the study are really brand new. I mean, these are, as you said, things that have been out there, things that I've been writing about. Um, what, what's you know what what's new about this is this question of you know actually doing it in a way where you still have a reliable power grid, where you can still you know meet energy demand on the hottest days of the summer and the coldest days of the winter, where you can you know withstand a, a heat wave like we saw last summer, where we had rolling blackouts or you know a, a cold snap like they had in Texas last month, which was even worse. Um, there, there's been a lot of sort of fear and uncertainty about you know can we put all of these actually put these pieces together in a way where where we're not you know threatening those types of events and and the finding here from Enrel was that a actually yes i mean there there is a way there not only is a way to do this there are many different ways to do this we're talking to Sammy Roth of the Los Angeles Times uh, i'm glad you mentioned the uh, the grid uh, Sammy because i was going to be that cold bucket of water on the very warm glow of a clean energy future because i was thinking you know that grid is not totally reliable especially when it's under extreme weather stress yeah, and, and that, that was one of the, the things they were looking at here. So in addition to just sort of, you know, normal, you know, hot and cold temperatures, they, they looked at, you know, can we do this in a way that's reliable if we have a, you know, a wildfire that takes down a transmission line or an earthquake that disrupts things? They, you know, they, they looked at some of those, um, you know, rare but, but ultimately predictable events and, and concluded that the answer was uh, yes, you know, we can, we can actually make the grid more reliable potentially if we, if we put these things together. That, that said, I mean, you're right. It, it, it's certainly not going to be easy. And, um, you know, making sure that they actually do it right is not the only hard thing. You talk about building all of that solar and wind, that's going to take a lot of land. Um, there are already fights happening over, you know, people who don't want uh, people in rural communities who don't want, you know, a solar farm in their backyard or yeah. conservationists in the desert who are worried about environmental impacts. And you've got to build transmission lines too. You've got to build these, you know, hundreds of miles of, of power lines and that's challenging. So it, just because it's feasible doesn't mean it's easy necessarily. So Sammy, I think it's probably obvious what the potential benefits are, but what did the study highlight as, as benefits? Yeah. So, I mean, the obvious one is, is climate. I mean, this is, you know, ultimately designed around, um, you know, getting emissions down as, as close to zero as possible so that we're, uh, you know, not fueling more of these, you know, wor worsening heat waves and fires and droughts and things like that. But, 
you know, then you also look at the air quality benefits locally, um, you know, from you've got power plants that are burning natural gas here in Los Angeles, you've got, uh, you know, cars and trucks, which which are pretty well known to be the, you know, the big source of uh, local air emissions. And I mean, this stuff is, is bad for people, it contributes to asthma, it contributes to, you know, heart attacks and strokes. And, and one of the interesting things in this study is they actually quantified what the health benefits, you know, the sort of avoided mortality and avoided health conditions of, of, you know, ramping back on all this stuff. And in low-income communities, sure, right? Because they, they t- tend to take the brunt of some of these terrible outcomes. That, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, it's an environmental justice question, and uh, they, you know, they, they quantified specifically how do people in those disadvantaged communities fare, and, and ultimately the answer is they fare a lot better. Now, plans are one thing, paying for them uh, something else. So how much would all of this cost L.A. taxpayers if uh, L.A. got on this fast track? So one thing that they they did not really do an analysis of electric bills. So it's it's a little bit hard to say, you know, how this ultimately affects, you know, your bill as a ratepayer. The, the sort of big numbers that they came up with were uh, somewhere in the range of like 60, 70, 80, you know, billion dollars in in cumulative spend over the next um 25 years. I mean, you know, maybe maybe a little less than that, maybe a little more than that depending on on which uh, you know, which pathway you're choosing, but you know, obviously a big number when we're talking tens of billions of dollars, but again, that that's sort of put into the context here of, you know, LA having a, a $200 billion annual economy. Sammy, one thing that was a little tough for me to square um, in, in the study was uh, a line that said that, it, that this won't affect the city of LA's economy on net in any meaningful way. What What's the reasoning for that? Well, I mean, I, I think basically the reasoning for that is just that the LA economy is really, really big. I mean, the, the numbers cited in here are that, you know, we've got, you know, 4 million jobs and, and $200 billion in annual economic output. Um, you know, and, and the jobs point in particular, they, you know, they, they found you could have a, you know, a, a few thousand, you know, additional jobs per year, you know, building clean energy, you might lose a few thousand, you know, jobs per year in other places. Obviously, there are going to be some fossil fuel job losses, but just when you when you look at the size of LA and and what that means in context, it just uh, you know the finding is that it's it's you know small by comparison. What's uh, Mayor Garcetti said about this study? Um, he's pretty excited. He uh, you know I, I asked him because Joe Biden, as I as I mentioned, uh, you know has has put twenty thirty five out there as the year that he wants to do this by. So I asked Garcetti, you know twenty thirty five is one of the options you studied here. Uh, you know is that something you're you're willing to commit to and. And basically, he said, uh, "Expect an answer in his, uh, you know, his state of the the city address next month." But he, he sure made it sound like he's going to come out in favor of that. Really quick, Garcetti worked with Biden on the uh, on the Biden campaign. Any chance of getting some federal government cash to help seed the plan? Well, I mean, I, I think that everyone expects that federal support is going to be a big part of this. I, I think one of the places where where the government, you know, the federal government might be most helpful, both both to the city and to sort of California as a whole, is. Um, you know, fun- funding research and development and funding, you know, sort of technology development for some of the stuff at the, you know, the fringe edges of this. So it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious how to, you know, how to do the first, you know, 85, 90, 95% yeah. of cleaning up the power grid. But when you get to the end, it's still, it's still a little bit less certain. So that that's where the feds can come in, I think. That's Sammy Roth of the LA Times. Sammy, as always, thanks a lot. You're welcome, eh? The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. As movie theaters continue to reopen across the country, how are people feeling about heading back to the cinema? Well, survey says... Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Hey, that's Larry David. Thank you, Larry David. Plus, Disney has announced they'll be releasing a Marvel film on Disney Plus on the same day as its theatrical release. For this and more, time to go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joining us is not Larry David. It is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, I'm still letting that Larry David sound effect wash over me. That was very enjoyable. It was Thank real. You. It's it's actual yeah. footage of Larry David. All right. Now, first up, let's talk about the movie theaters. Uh, they're now allowed to reopen at 25% capacity here in L.A. County. And it looks like Regal Cinemas is right on track to reopen 500 locations nationwide by April 2nd. Plus, the movie theater chain has struck a new deal with Warner Brothers. So tell us all about that. Well, you might remember earlier in the pandemic, Warner Brothers made the, uh, at the time, controversial decision to release all its 2021 films simultaneously in theaters and on its streaming service, HBO Max. Um, This new deal walks that back a little bit. This is a deal with Cineworld, which owns Regal. Um, It's a multi-year agreement that starts in 2022, and it stipulates that starting then, Warner Brothers Features will have to play in theaters for 45 days before Mm -hmm. moving to streaming platforms or VOD. Okay. I thought it was going to be Justice League at a Regal Cinema near me soon. (laughs) I would run down for that one. Um, Any other major movie theaters chains going to follow suit, you think, or or maybe have already done that? Well, they're all kind of experimenting with different models. Uh, Much earlier in the pandemic, Universal negotiated a deal with a couple of theater chains to put new movies on their video on demand platforms in as little as 17 days after Mm. they were in theaters. Paramount movies are going to their streaming service after 45 days. It's all in flux, but that old model where you'd have to wait you know, three months after a movie was in theaters before you could watch it at home. That is a casualty of the pandemic. Now, speaking of theatrical releases, uh, Walt Disney Studios is pushing back the release dates of uh, six movies. The studio announced plans to release uh, Cruella and Marvel's Black Widow on Disney Plus on the same day that they arrive in theaters. Um, What are some possible reasons for these decisions, Rebecca? And can we expect this model to continue in the future? Well, a big reason for this is as positive as things are going with the pandemic here in L.A., 
they're not going that well in other important markets, including yeah. Europe and Latin America, where numbers are up and vaccine uh, rates are, are slow. So this is a global business and movie studios are taking in the whole sort of scope of the pandemic. And Disney pushing these movies back suggests they think it's going to be a while before they can release a movie as expensive as Black Widow is um, and recoup what they what they would in a normal theater going market. I mean, how will same day releases impact cinemas? I mean, especially right now that many are kind of slowly reopening to the public. That's kind of the million dollar question. Everybody is experimenting right now. I think there's a lot of pent up demand, a lot of people looking for an excuse to get out of the house. And these kind of big spectacles are the kind of movies that encourage people to do that. It is a different experience seeing a movie like a Marvel movie in a theater than it is at home. And I think theater owners are crossing their fingers that consumers still feel that way. Now, Rebecca, we have talked about uh, how, um, under what conditions I would go back to a movie theater. I, two masks on, a cap pulled down low, almost covering my eyes, a hoodie over all that, maybe some gloves. That's that's just how I'm going to roll for a little while. But confidence among moviegoers has uh, hit the highest level since the pandemic began, and that's according to a survey conducted by the National Research Group, or NRG. Rebecca, tell us more about these uh, very confident moviegoers, apparently. Yeah, well, NRG has been serving people weekly about movie going for the whole pandemic. And for the first time since last March, those saying they would feel, quote, very or, quote, somewhat okay about buying a movie ticket hit 57 percent. Oh, wow. That's identical to what people were saying on March 15th, 2020, the Sunday before all U.S. cinemas went dark. I got it. OK, I am feeling the itch. I got to admit, Rebecca, I mean, now that I've, now that things are opening up a little bit, I am feeling like maybe I can adjust my timetable a little bit. I guess that's that's what the movie theater business wants, right? People to kind of rethink things a little bit and maybe, you know, speed up their timetable to heading back. Yeah, I think they're counting on a few things. They're counting on people who go having a good experience and telling friends and family that they felt safe. Um, they're also counting on some of the movies that are coming out this spring, like Godzilla versus Kong, which is out in a couple of weeks from Warner Brothers being the kind of spectacle event movies yeah. that get people off their couch, especially during, say, spring break, which will have a lot of kids at home, people out of school looking for something to do. That's the one you want to see on a big screen with a surround sound. I mean, you just do. If you want to see Godzilla versus Kong, if that's something that interests you, and it is for me, I want to see that as as blasting into my eyes and ears as possible. We're talking to Rebecca Keegan, senior editor film for The Hollywood Reporter. All right, now let's turn to uh, three letters that have received a lot of buzz lately, NF. And that stands for non-fungible tokens. Uh, Rebecca, you recently wrote about this craze, but first, can you explain exactly what NFTs are? Yeah, NFTs use the same type of technology that underpins cryptocurrencies to verify the authenticity of other digital assets, uh, potentially making a collectible out of a JPEG, say, or even a tweet. They got a lot of attention recently after an artist named Beeple sold an NFT at auction at Christie's for $69 million. Is that kind of like the the guy with the Fleetwood Mac video, video the skateboard guy? Because I think he sold uh, no. his original. Okay, not the same thing. Okay. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that it's a weird thing that has happened yeah, in the okay. last six months. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, how are they making their way to Hollywood and what uh, impact are, are, is this having on digital artists and creators? 
Well, a lot of the artists who make Hollywood movies and video games are uh, people who sort of toil in obscurity and they see NFTs as a way to get some income and get some sort of attention for their work, for their creative work that they do outside of their you know, big Hollywood projects. One of the people who is putting some of his work out as an NFT is Rick Carter, who's a very respected production designers work for Steven Spielberg and James Cameron has a couple of Oscars. Um, studios are also looking at the space a little bit more warily at this point because there are some intellectual property issues or potential intellectual property issues. For instance, a, an artist who had worked on, a, on Wonder Woman in the 70s has sold some of his art and it sort of mm. raises the question, does Warner Media, which owns DC, oh, yeah, own that yeah. stuff or does the artist own it? It's, it's a complicated legal terrain. All right, one more thing, Rebecca. It uh, it has been confirmed an R-rated version of the 1993 film Mrs. Doubtfire exists, but director Chris Columbus says that uh, that version of the movie will likely never be released. He says that now, but I, I, I'll believe it when I don't see it. Um, so what else do we know about this, and, and do you think there are more maybe second cuts of older films that fans might want to demand be be recut and, and, and re-released? Well, of course, it's all coming on the heels of the Snyder Cut re-release, yeah. which was spurred by fans. Um, as far as the Mrs. Doubtfire uh, R-rated version, that's largely owing to the improvisational skills of the movie's star, Robin Williams, who would film lots of takes, some of them not PG-13 appropriate, which is the rating the film had when it was released in 1993. Chris Columbus has never actually cut those together. Uh-huh. There's just enough material that he could. I mean, there could Personally, be, right? right? Yeah. There could be, yeah. I, you know, personally, I would love to see, you know, if Nancy Myers is listening, a four-hour version of It's Complicated. I, I think <laughs> that's what you would want. Meryl, that's what I want. Meryl Streep in a kitchen for four hours on there. Okay, okay, not what I would pick. <laughs> normally, I, I would. Normally, I would we, pick something, you know, but not that one. No, <laughs> of all of well, them. A to yeah. each her own. I guess so. I guess so. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior film editor at the Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, talk to you next week. See ya. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places, you get your podcasts. Sammy Martinez. As noted earlier, we have a new attorney general in California. Assemblyman Rob Bonta of Oakland has been chosen to replace Javier Becerra, who was recently named Health and Human Services Secretary under President Joe Biden. Here's Governor Gavin Newsom making the announcement today. This is an incredibly important office in the cause of, yes, racial justice, social justice, economic justice, environmental justice. By the way, all things professionally since 2012, Rob Bonta has been on the forefront of as well. So who is Rob Bonta? Let's ask attorney Stuart Quo, president emeritus of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Stuart, welcome to Take Two. Thank you, A. I know Rob Bonta was born in the Philippines. Um, so what does this mean, you think, uh, for, for Asian Americans and, and politics in California? Well, I think it's a great move by the governor. Uh, Rob was the first Filipino-American elected to the California legislature. Uh, he's been the past chair of the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus. We just had a... Um, a press conference last week to support his uh, elevation to California Attorney General. Uh, we believe he's the best candidate, uh, regardless of race. Joining us now, too, is uh, Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. He also co-hosts the weekly show and podcast, Political Breakdown. Uh, Scott, uh, Bonta is known as a progressive and a criminal justice reformer. Uh, tell us a little bit about how he's earned that reputation. Yeah, well, he has authored many bills in the state legislature, including one to eliminate uh, private prisons in California. He authored a bill or co-authored a bill, SB 10, which eliminated cash bail. Now the voters repealed that or there was a referendum and it was never enacted. Uh, And he's uh, certainly enacted uh, or uh, sponsored and co-authored legislation regarding police uh, accountability uh, and that sort of thing. So that certainly has earned him support from people like Alicia Garza, who is the uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and a lot of other leading criminal justice reform advocates in California. Scott, there there were a lot of candidates for this job. Abonto is always you know, right around the top of that list. But just last week, a lot of us were talking about how Congressman Adam Schiff uh, might be a late front runner for the job. Uh, why did Bonta wind up getting it in the end? Well, I can't say. You'd have to ask the governor that, but uh, clearly they have a long-time relationship. I think the moment we're in right now with uh, uh, these terrible, uh, violent acts against Asian Americans, he is, of course, Filipino-American, uh, will be the first Filipino-American AG. I think that, uh, you know, that it, the symbolism of that and the substance of that are important. Um, he's also going to have to turn around whoever it is next uh, next year and run for re-election. He is a good fundraiser. He has about uh, $2.4 million in the bank. Obviously, Adam Schiff could have done that as well. But I think it comes down to personal relationships. He's known Bata for, the governor has, for a very long time. Stuart. And uh, I think that in the end, he wanted somebody he could trust. Yeah, and Stuart, you know, what, what Scott just mentioned, I mean, obviously, crimes against Asian Americans are, are very much on people's mind right now. How important is it that uh, Bonta is Filipino, considering the moment we're in right now? Well, I think it's very important. He has uh, co-authored an Assembly Bill 886 uh, that speaks to hate violence and victim support. Asian Americans have suffered the sting of an upsurge in anti-Asian violence. And I think it's very important to have uh, an AG who speaks for all Californians, but who is Asian American. 
you know, California has not had a great history in dealing with multiracial democracy uh, with people of color, in particular uh, with Asian Americans. And I think it will uh, speak volumes to have an Asian American as the AG. Uh, I remember how uh, not only Californians, but Americans treated uh, Japanese Americans as Japanese during World War II and incarcerated 120,000 people with no trial. And so I think um, um, Rob will make the point that Asian Americans are Americans and we need to be treated uh, fairly as well as all Californians and uh, all people of color. Stuart, he is from the Bay Area, not really uh, as well-known in Southern California. As, as someone from uh, Southern California, Stuart, what gives you confidence uh, in him as an attorney general that he'll represent all of Californians' needs? Well, I've visited uh, Rob several times uh, advocating for different uh, propositions. He's a very fair-minded, uh, effective person. He will think about all Californians, and if you look at his uh, work on tenants' rights, uh, where he banned outright out, outrageous rent increases, uh, protecting teacher retirement funds. Uh, those those uh, applied to all Californians. And his Truth Act, uh, which dealt with um, informing immigrants of all their rights, um, you know, affected all Californians. So we're very confident that he can uh, represent all of us uh, all of us in California, and uh, those of us in Southern California as well. Scott Schaefer, right off the bat, uh, what do you see as uh, his biggest challenges? I think Scott uh, Scott just dropped. We'll see if we can get him back. Um, uh, Stuart, what do you hope to see from him once uh, once he takes office? What, what do you think, uh, right off the bat, his uh, biggest challenge will be? Well, I think uh, we need to unite this state. Uh, certainly, uh, Rob has experience in the uh, health field. And so we uh, we will count on him to make sure that we have uh, sufficient uh, resources, both from the state and the federal government, to make sure that everybody gets vaccinated and that, that there's no legal hiccups or uh, drawbacks in that. Uh, so I think that will be very important because he uh, has a history of working as a uh, in the medical field, um, and he has been uh, vice mayor of Alameda. So he knows what it's going to take to make sure that we can conquer our main um, adversary, the, the virus. So I think that he will be uh, very well experienced and uh, ready to take that on. I know that Zabanta was a San Francisco deputy district attorney from what, 2003 to 2012. Uh, what do you know about his his style in that way? I mean, have you ever said uh, uh, made a name for himself by, by being very aggressive against the uh, Trump administration? Uh, you know, uh, what, what do you know about uh, Rob Bonta's style in terms of maybe possibly being the AG, not possibly being the AG, but his possible style as as uh, California's attorney general? Well, I think that uh, Rob will listen. Uh, he's a good listener. I remember visiting his office a couple times, and he uh, just sat there listening and trying to figure out what exactly he could do uh, in our uh, situation. So I think that that's what we need is an attorney general who will listen, 
uh, Javier, uh, when he took over, people were wondering why he didn't uh, take action. But eventually he filed many suits, uh, largely against the Trump administration, and he uh, was very prolific. So I think we'll see the same uh, style with Rob to really listen to the constituents and make sure that uh, everybody is covered. And uh, again, especially with the vaccines and uh, California turning the tide against the coronavirus, uh, that's, that's the kind of leader we will need. Attorney Stuart Quo is President Emeritus of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Uh, Stuart, thank you very much. Thank you, A. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.